Praise be to God that we're drawn together again. The Lord continues to bring us together and we're continuing forward in Acts chapter 4 today, focusing on verses 36 and 37. Barnabas, son of encouragement, is the title of the message today. Let's stand together, brothers and sisters, for the reading of God's Word. Read from verse 23 of chapter 4 through to verse 11 of chapter 5. Please listen carefully because this is God's holy and infallible Word. And being let go, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. So when they heard that, they raised their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, you are God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. Who by the mouth of your servant David have said, Why did the nations rage and the people plot vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke the word of God with boldness. Now, the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. And with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. Nor was there anyone among, whom, among them who lacked. For all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet. And they distributed to each as anyone had need. And Joseph, who was also named Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated son of encouragement, a Levite of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it, and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a certain man named Ananias, with Sapphira his wife, sold a possession, and he kept back part of the proceeds, his wife also being aware of it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? While it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your own control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. Then Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and breathed his last. So great fear came upon all those who heard these things. And the young men arose and wrapped him up, carried him out, and buried him. Now it was about three hours later when his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter answered her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. She said, Yes, for so much. Then Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Then, immediately, she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead, and carrying her out, buried her by her husband. 
So great fear came upon all the church and upon all who heard these things. Thus ends the reading of God's Word. Amen. 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 Please be seated. The Lord's Day is the day we come together week by week until His return to, to celebrate His resurrection from the dead. And so it is impossible to come together and worship God and not speak of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead. It's, we have to remember, we're here celebrating His resurrection from the dead. And so death is always a part of our celebration here. Victory over death, life after death, but death is always a part of our conversation. So you're going to die, right? Even you little children, a day is coming where you will die and you won't breathe anymore. We even read about Ananias and Sapphira. They fell down dead and breathed their last. You know, the Lord has appointed a moment for each one of us to breathe our last. Now, that may seem like bad news, but that's actually good news. Because the Lord has appointed it, and you can't leave this earth until that moment. But the question is, going beyond that, this tombstone idea, right? And you've probably heard this from preachers before. What will be written, engraved, carved upon your tombstone? And this is one way to evaluate ourselves, to ponder our lives, is to imagine what would be engraved there. What's going to be on your tombstone? That's a reasonable question, isn't it? To ask ourselves. And what about this? If it were carved out today, and it was honest, and it was accurate, what would it say about you today on that tombstone? Well, I'll tell you, there's a stone that matters even more. Because its engraving will indeed be perfect It will be perfectly honest. Revelation 2.17, we're promised, the Bible says, to him who overcomes, I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. And of course, the engraving that matters is the one made by God's hand. And we can't ever perfectly know ourselves, but God does. And he forgives us. And he's working in us, and he's changing us into the likeness of Christ. Today, we see that Barnabas got a new name. And that story hopefully should help us all be motivated to be encouragers, to be like Barnabas was to the church then. Will we be those who know how to live, how to act and to speak in ways that build up, that strengthen, that encourage, that exhort, uh, that console, that comfort, that help us grow up in Christ together. Last week we saw the church growing in vitality even in the face of great persecution and the challenge of growth. They were continuing to be vital, healthy, even though they were growing very quickly and even though they were undergoing intense persecution. Remember, from the same organization that had recently, within months, murdered Jesus, their leader. They're called a multitude, and this uh, Jerusalem church continues in great power and grace, we're told, under the Holy Spirit, filled with the Holy Spirit. They are of one heart, they are of one soul, they are united together in Christ, in his gospel, in his kingdom, and his great mission that he has given to them. I think it'll be important as we go through the sermon to also consider the connection of encouragement, consider the connection of consolation and comfort Mutual comfort, mutual encouragement with 
Barnabas being the one who is kind of marked out as the leader, if you will. So to this end, their hearts are filled with tenderness and affection towards one another. Their unity gives them this deep compassion and care. And then their generosity abounds as they share the material goods such that no one amongst them lacked. Their compassion was real. It, uh, you could wear it. Uh, you could taste it. <laughs> you could put it on your feet, right? You could touch and feel the compassion that they had for one another. And this abundant generosity included even landowners who were selling their land and bringing the proceeds to the apostles for the good of the church. One commentary says, in this passage, Luke makes the point that the transforming power of the Holy Spirit and the grace of God create a community of believers united in a common faith and a common purpose who selflessly share their material resources with needy members. The unity of a local church is real only when it is visible. The church is not just a concept, but the specific reality of individual believers meeting and worshiping together in a local congregation. In like manner, the unity of the church is not just a theological idea, but the concrete reality of believers living and serving together. The commentary lists three of these examples. The unity of the church becomes visible when believers meet together for prayer and teaching, confirming and consolidating their common convictions, beliefs, and purpose. So this is one of the observations from the text. Number two, the unity of the church becomes visible when the needs of individuals become known. An important way in which this happens is the sharing of meals, where it becomes obvious who has much, who has little, and who has nothing. That's another observation from this text. They knew one another well enough to know each other's needs. They saw life. They didn't just see each other coming together for worship. They saw one another's lives. Number three, the unity of the church becomes visible when believers are willing and eager to meet the needs of fellow believers. The authenticity of a community of believers can be ascertained in their use of material resources. The health of any community can be ascertained by the way in which the weakest members are treated. And this is particularly true for the community of Jesus followers. So if we think about this, the encouragement, the comfort that we learn to offer to one another in the unity of the faith, and the unity of purpose that we have, it will, it will be something you can see. And a community of, like, of believers like that will welcome, will attract and welcome the weak and the downtrodden and the outcast and the lonely and the needy, the those who, have, who are the off-scouring, those who are of no use to society. Oh, well, that just has no place in Christianity, does it, brothers and sisters? All of us are made in God's image, and every one of us placed here by God's grace to demonstrate His glory in some unique way. And so they knew how to receive one another like that. See, Barnabas gave it to the apostles. He didn't go and choose out the one person that he felt like was a really needy person and do it himself. Not that there's anything wrong with private giving. Not saying that. But you just see the, the overwhelming compassion for the body of Christ that's coming forth. Not just from Barnabas, from others. But he's the one that's singled out. So today we'll take a close look at one of the leaders in generosity. One of the leaders in compassion. The one Luke chooses to single out for us to know and to praise and emulate. Barnabas, the son of encouragement. So in today's sermon, we'll look at his name, Joseph, 
which is actually Joseph. And we'll look at how he got another name from the apostles and consider the, the sweetness of this. And then we'll look at the idea of son of encouragement. What does that mean? What was he doing? What was he saying? And then we'll learn a little bit about Barnabas, that he was a Levite from Cyprus, and that he had land, sold it, and gave it to the church. And then, as usual, some questions to know and to love and to obey God more fully. So first of all, his given name, the one that he got while he was probably got while he was in Cyprus. The text says, Joseph. Well, this is really the Greek version of the word Joseph. And Luke introduces Joseph Barnabas to us in in this narrative. This is where he shows up for the first time. And we can call him Joseph Barnabas. After Peter and Paul, he is one of the most frequently mentioned believers in Acts. Did you know that? He comes up all the time. And uh, I hope that through this sermon, as as you're reading through the book of Acts, that he'll grab your attention more. Because clearly he is given to us as one to emulate. The name of Barnabas was Joseph. Joseph was, after Simon, the second most popular male name among Palestinian Jews. It's no wonder Joseph was such a popular name throughout the history of the Jews, given the greatly encouraging story of Joseph, the son of Jacob. I'm sure you remember the overall shape and flow of that wonderful story. Hated, mistreated, rejected, thrown into a pit. Good as dead as far as they were concerned. Sold into slavery by his own brothers. For decades, decades, the Lord supports him and gradually, via Joseph's steady faithfulness, the Lord brings him to be second in command of all of Egypt. And then the Lord uses Joseph and his tenderness and his willingness to forgive, his maturity, his humility, and his power to rescue his family out of the famine of the land of Canaan where they were starving. Their lives were threatened. Joseph forgave his brothers and the Lord brought restoration and his family received a good land in Egypt. Joseph was a critical link in the salvation of God's people in the Old Testament narrative. Joseph received the double portion from his father, Jacob. You don't go and find one of the 12 tribes listed as Joseph, do you? Because there's Ephraim and Manasseh. He got two. See Joseph's heart in this exchange with his brothers when they are finally restored, and you can understand why people would want to name their son Joseph. We have one of those in our family. Then his brothers also went and fell down before his face. And they said, Behold, we are your servants. And Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid, for am I in the place of God? But as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, in order to bring it about as it is this day, to save many people alive. Now therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. And he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So he's the first son of encouragement, right? We see this in Joseph from the Old Testament. So it appears Barnabas was in many ways living out this same kind of humility, wisdom, and kind generosity as Joseph, the son of Jacob. But he gets another name, who was also named Barnabas by the apostles. So you probably recall that Jesus gave nicknames to his apostles as a sign of his love and friendship with them. And it seems that the apostles began to adopt this same honoring practice. These terms of endearment are a mark of community love. I mean, who doesn't love it when their grandchild says their name and it's just the craziest combination of sounds, but you know it's your sound. Like, I know I'm dad, 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 right? Right? And you guys, you know, Terry, you know. 
papa, right? So these terms of endearment, and you know, you're probably husbands and wives, and wives towards husbands. So this demonstrates the, the sweet unity of the community that was in place there. These terms of endearment are a mark of community love. So you know, Jesus' three closest friends while he was on the earth, Peter, James, and John. It's over and over again, right? Peter, James, and John. Peter, James, and John. Peter, James, and John. Well, guess what? They got nicknames from Jesus. James and John are called the sons of thunder. They probably had a way with words, if you will. They're probably pretty bold. They're probably known to tell it like it is, right? Mark 3.17 says, 3.17, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges. That is, sons of thunder. So James and John, sons of thunder. Of course, this is the same James that we've already talked about who got cut, who got killed by the sword, right? And of course, John wrote the Gospel of John and, and the Epistles and the book of Revelation. Sons of thunder. Well, of course, Simon, we know, was Peter, which means rock. Mark 3.16, right before the verse we've already read, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter. So Jesus was giving new names to these people. And then Matthew 16, we see a a deeper explanation of the new name. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. So the names are instructive. The names demonstrate something unique about that individual that has been noticed by Christ. And so from this, we begin to see that Joseph, the Levite from Cyprus, it appears as though he stands as kind of like a second generation man, analogous to Peter, to James, and John, and the first generation of the followers of Jesus. Like Jesus renamed these three close friends, marking them out, so the apostles took notice of Joseph's faithfulness through the years, likely. He, it's likely he was one of the 70. We don't know that for sure. It appears he'd been around for a while. Anyways, they'd taken notice of him for however long he'd been around, and they renamed him Barnabas, son of encouragement. Now that should just stir your soul to think about, wow, being that kind of person, that the apostles would take notice and say, Barnabas, son of encouragement. Who doesn't want that, right? Wouldn't you love to have the people in your life think of you that way? Notice is taken of the apostles changing his name after he associated with them. It is probable that he was one of the 70 and as he increased in gifts and graces grew eminent and was respected by the apostles who in token of their value for him gave him a name, Barnabas. So Barnabas, we're told, is translated son of encouragement. Now this word encouragement, it's one that is worth unpacking. You may recall when we talked about the Holy Spirit being called the comforter that word can have a number of different meanings. It can be helper. It can be comforter. There's a number of different ways to look at this word. It carries a lot of meaning, as does this very closely related word. If you're an encourager, you'll be one who makes entreaties to people. And an entreaty in its nature is where you're able to speak and call someone out to listen and to hear in a way that is inviting, a way that is desirable, not a way that brings fright into their mind. In addition, we will know how to exhort and admonish if necessary. So this idea of being an encourager, one who can console and comfort, 
is, is one who's wise enough to understand all the various forms of communication that are available and when to use each form with each person and where they are. It takes wisdom. It takes love. It takes engaging with someone. It takes knowing someone to know whether to communicate this way or that way or at all. <clears throat> this brings about the ability to encourage, which means to give courage, which means to help take away fear. It means to build people up in the faith, not to tear them down, so that when the communication or the actions are taking place, the message is always, I long for you to know Christ better. I long for you to be nearer to Christ. I long for you to be comforted and consoled and taught and changed and grown up in Christ. This is what Barnabas was like. We also have the idea of consolation, comfort, and solace. <clears throat> and that may be really the deepest meaning, the central meaning of this word. That which affords comfort or refreshment. And Jesus is called the consoler, the comforter. We'll see that scripture here in a minute. But it will often lead, it will be connected to someone who's powerful in speech. The longing for others to know and to love Christ leads to a devotion to communication in a way that, that is effective. And so you'll often see people like this who have persuasive discourse and give stirring addresses because they're fueled by this intense, continuous longing for the people who are hearing them to be, or seeing them. So in their actions and in their speech, they just want others to be built up in the Lord. And you notice, if you'll think about it, it's just this intense other focus. It is a desire for others to be built up in Christ. And so self-considerations and self-concerns are, are very secondary to encouragers, to people who know how to console and comfort. So let's look at some of the biblical usage of this term. Just a few verses. There's a lot of verses that we could look at. I chose three. Luke 2.25 And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and the same man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Ghost was upon him. So who is the consolation of Israel? Jesus, our Savior. So this man, Simeon, he was a devout Jew. He understood the Old Testament Scriptures. He knew the teachings about the Messiah to come. And they knew them so deeply that they referred to this great Messiah to come as the consolation of Israel. So connected with this is the awareness that you are in pain. The awareness that you are suffering. The awareness that you are deficient. The awareness that you are weak and that you need to be helped and consoled. And that's what encouragers do. They want to help others find the fountain of consolation. Barnabas knew that he wasn't the encourager ultimately. He just wanted to get people close to Jesus. Jesus, the one who is the consoler, the comforter. Acts 9.31 Then the churches throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and were edified and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they were multiplied. So there you see that word comfort connected to the Holy Spirit. You see the impact of this comfort in Christ and what it does in the midst of a community when they're all experiencing this comfort together and they're, they're learning how to mutually encourage and console and comfort one another by going to Christ together over and over again. Now this next text really is... Uh, 
the pivotal text about comfort in the, in really in the Bible, um, for sure in the New Testament. Just listen to this. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulation, that we, so why? Why? For our comfort, yes, but it's even more. That we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. You see, no matter what you've been through, if you've received comfort from God, no matter what your particular suffering was, that comfort you receive and continue to experience, you can share it with someone else no matter what they're going through. You don't have to suffer in the same way as someone else to be able to comfort them. You just have to drink from the fountain of comfort and take them to the Lord. Isn't that beautiful? For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also abounds through Christ. Now, if we are afflicted, it is for your consolation and salvation, which is effective for enduring the same sufferings which we also suffer. Or if we are comforted, comforted, it is for your consolation and salvation. And our hope for you is steadfast, because we know that as you are partakers of the suffering, so also you will partake of the consolation. This drinking from the fountain of comfort is the overflowing that we get from God to one another that goes out to the whole world. And it really it should be seen as a defining feature of what it means to be a community, is that we're drinking from God's comfort and we're sharing that comfort with one another. And it brings such perspective into our suffering. I mean, Paul says we suffer so that we can comfort you. And so we want to make sure that we're drinking from Christ. Because there's, you know, listen, you know this for your own life, I'm sure. There's other choices available to you when you suffer. There are other choices available to you when you're afflicted. And if you go down the wrong path and you respond to your sufferings and afflictions apart from the comfort of God, bad things happen. And your ability to be that encourager and to be that, that next strengthening source of bonds in the body of Christ, you're, you're not there. That node in the network of strength in the body of Christ is not present. You're a weak spot in the body of Christ. So may we all, brothers and sisters, be comforted by Christ. Amen? A son of consolation, so we read it. One that did himself walk very much in the comforts of the Holy Ghost. This is Matthew Henry. A cheer about Barnabas. A cheerful Christian, and this enlarged his heart in charity to the poor. Or one that was eminent for comforting the Lord's people and speaking peace to wounded, troubled consciences. He had an admirable facility that way. So, through the, the right words and the right actions at the right time, We call that wisdom and humility. Joseph Barnabas was able to bring into the moment a word or a deed to dispel deception, to to dissipate discouragement, and to bring the sweet, sweet aroma of divine comfort, heaven's river, the consolation of heaven's shores. He could bring this to build up and strengthen others in Christ. That was, that's what he was trying to do. 
He did this so often and so well and so consistently that he is now known to you and to me by Barnabas more than Joseph. Listen, your given family name is important, but who you are in Christ, that is what ultimately defines you. And I, I can't help but think that what's written on that little white stone is going gonna, is gonna to be a, a unique description of the life of Christ in and through you. What you looked like more and more as you grew more like Christ in your life. The ways in which you were able to be a positive, a Christ-like influence in the world and in, to, to those around you. Alright, so about Barnabas. He's a Levite of the country of Cyprus. So he was likely born and raised up in Cyprus in a Greek Jewish family. So one of the Jewish families that had been a part of the dispersion of the Jews and had settled there. We don't know how long they'd been settled there. And he was faithful to the Jewish faith is what it looks like. He was of the tribe of Levi and he was a Levite. He's actually the only one in the New Testament who's called a Levite. And he was likely participating in the special teaching and, re- and administrative religious functions of the Levites. And we don't know that for sure. Not every Levite necessarily took up that role in the synagogue. But he probably did. They were the special tribe set apart to serve God as priests and religious leaders. Barnabas came from a Levitical family that lived on Cyprus. His identity as a Levite does not imply that he worked in the temple, although it's certainly possible from the commentary from the uh, Bible dictionary. This Greek formulation in verse 36 suggests that he was born on Cyprus. Less likely is the suggestion that he may have belonged to a family that once lived on Cyprus. So we don't know for sure, but the language suggests that he was actually born there. Strongly suggests. If he was indeed, indeed, indeed born on Cyprus, he was a diaspora Jew who was probably fluent in both Aramaic and Greek. But he lived in Jerusalem where he apparently had been converted to faith in Jesus Messiah at an earlier date. If Joseph resided in Jerusalem for several years before he became a believer in Jesus, he may have had an encounter with Jesus. So that's a little bit of background about Joseph, born in Cyprus, ended up in Jerusalem, and was now there amongst the disciples during this great revival that was taking place after Pentecost. Now, a little bit of a reminder about the Levites so you can know a little bit more about Barnabas and his, his background. The descendants of Levi, the third son of Jacob and Leah, the assistants of the Aaronic priests in the tabernacle and temple worship. The Levites were divided into three clans named for Levi's sons, the Gershonites, the Kohathites, and the Merarites. At the time of the Exodus, Yahweh proclaimed his right to all firstborn Israelite males. So every firstborn male belonged to Yahweh. But in the wilderness, he determined that the tribe of Levi be dedicated to his service in place of all of those firstborn sons. Within the tribe of Levi, the descendants of Aaron were to be the priests, while those Levites not descended from Aaron were to assist in the tabernacle and temple worship, but not as priests. Because the tribe of Levi had not been allotted land within Canaan, The Levites had no direct means of support. Thus, they were to receive a tenth of both the harvest and the livestock, of which they in turn were to give a tenth of of that tenth to the priests in Jerusalem. The Israelites were also to invite the Levites to their sacrificial meals. 
So the Levites were servants of the temple, servants of the synagogue. They didn't have any land. They didn't have any revenue. All that they had, they received through the tithe. And so they would, these would be the religious leaders in the synagogues throughout the ones, you know, not in Jerusalem. These were the leaders throughout the synagogues that helped them know the word, study the word, read the word, know the law of God. They were also the scribes, the ones who kept up with all the history of the region as well. They had a very important job. It's, I think it's worth noting, think of this man. He's a Levite. He's a, a Jewish religious leader of the time, very likely. Unlike other religious leaders who constantly opposed Christ and who ultimately worked with the Roman government to murder Christ, Joseph Barnabas serves an example of God's faithfulness. He said he would always have a remnant. And he is an example of the remnant true Jews who will be saved from the coming destruction of the nation of Israel. Not all Jews were apostate and not all Jewish leaders hated Christ and his church. That's one thing we can learn in addition from Joseph Barnabas. Now, what did he do? Well, this is the moment. He sees the need. He knows what's going on. He takes action. Having land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So what does he do? He's in the midst of these people. He's living amongst them and he's noting the needs of his brothers and sisters in Christ. He knew that something had to be done. And he knew that he had the personal means to satisfy these pressing material needs. Did, was his land enough for everybody? We don't know how much he sold. Did he go to the church leaders and suggest they take up a donation from all the members? Nope. Did he go to the church leaders and ask them to use current church funds? Not that we know of. Did he complain about the problem and point the finger at the apostles? Did he berate the Jewish and Roman leaders for not using their wealth and power to help out? Did he rail against the wealthy, creating haves and have-nots narrative? I could go on with a lot of other bad options that he didn't choose, couldn't I? Now, maybe this wouldn't have been a bad option, but think about the wisdom. Did he do it privately, quietly, in a way that could have purchased him personal influence amongst the needy? This kind of action can be something that can be used in a divisive way by a divisive person, right? Now, it's not necessarily divisive to go and give something to someone who's needy. It's actually a good thing if the Lord calls you to that. But somehow Barnabas knew that the need of the moment was to give it to the apostles and to do it at their feet in a way that was a visible action. And we know that others did the same thing. So the, the strong suggestion here is that Barnabas kind of set the pattern. And he pointed in the right direction. Of course, the scoundrels that we'll look at next week tried to use it for personal gain. And they wanted to join in and look good. So, more about uh, the Levites from this uh, commentary. They weren't allowed to own land. This had changed, though, by the first century. Barnabas owned this piece of land, perhaps on Cyprus, perhaps in the vicinity of Jerusalem. So it's important to kind of pause and say they had land by then. The Levites did have some land by then. Going on. The action of Barnabas is described succinctly. He sold the land, he took the money from the sale, and he placed it at the apostles' feet to be distributed to the needy believers. Luke presents Barnabas as an example 
of the selfless sharing of resources which he had described in the prior verses in general terms. In the historical context of the Jerusalem church, we can assume that he served as a role model for the perhaps 8,000 believers who were there in Jerusalem at that time. So he took his land, went through the process of selling it. He took the money from the sale, and he himself took it and gave it to the, to the apostles, trusting that they would use it according to how the Lord showed them, according to the needs of the community, that they would distribute it rightly. It's a major decision. He trusted them. And he wasn't afraid to be an example to the local church. He wasn't afraid. He gave to the apostles in a way that could set an example for others to do the same. It's not necessarily prideful to do something in order to set an example of behavior. Commentary says the local church needs the example of Christian leaders. And this isn't referencing, you know, position, elder, deacon. That's not what this is referencing. This is referencing people who are simply being like Christ and leading by example. Back to the commentary. Churches benefit immensely from the role model of leading Christians. The example of Barnabas, a leading preacher and missionary, was important for Luke to record as a specific illustration of the selfless behavior of Jerusalem believers. There's two specific things the commentary notes. Wealthy Christians need to be challenged to be role models of the proper attitude regarding material possessions. Barnabas apparently was wealthy and he showed that right attitude and right behavior. Secondly, a local church should never rely on wealthy believers for financial support as it is a privilege of all believers who are able to help to contribute to the alleviation of the needs of other believers. And that's what was going on there. Everyone was contributing as they could. If they had surplus, they all wanted to contribute to help with the needs. So, a few questions now to try to bring this home and help us consider these principles for ourselves, for our families, for our church our own lives. So the first question is, how was Barnabas made an encourager, a comforter? How was it that he could console others? We read, didn't we, from 2 Corinthians chapter 1. He had suffered himself. He had had pain and affliction himself. And he had been comforted by Christ. We all have pain and affliction in our lives, but not all of us learn how to be comforted by God. And so, perhaps Barnabas had had a lot of suffering in his life. Perhaps he had been through situations where he had to be comforted deeply himself. We don't know for sure, do we? The details. But the simple answer to this question is that Barnabas was drinking deeply from Christ's gospel. He was drinking deeply from the comfort of God, the God of all comforts. He knew how to encourage because he had been encouraged. He knew how to entreat because he had known the Lord's kindness that drew him in. He knew these things because of his relationship with God. Next. Where did Barnabas point in order to exhort, teach, build up, encourage, and help, and to console? You know the answer. He pointed to Christ. Now this may seem like Christianity 101, but we so often do not do this. 
There are so many other options for encouragement, consolation, comfort, uh, correction, admonishment, other than Christ. And many of them appear to be successful. The whole secular psychology movement is an example. Uh, We could pick others. There are counterfeit measures. And a lot of this seeps into our own thinking. Listen, we just want to somehow find a way in every conversation to take it back to Christ. Somehow, some way to have the Scriptures in our mind and in our heart and, and on our tongues that we're speaking of His goodness and His glory. And we're considering actions that we can live out that are like Him. That are like what He did. This is no easy matter. When we live in a world that ignores Christ. We live in a world that mocks Christ. Even if you know what to say or what to do, there'll be pressures not to. Because of the world that we live in. Because of our own sin. He pointed to Christ. And since He was a son of encouragement, we know that He did it over and over and over and over again. There is no hope apart from the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. In every problem, every pain, every affliction, every need we have, every every problem, every solution comes from Christ. And He will pour out His Holy Spirit within us and through us by His Word And He will bring to us the teaching, the encouragement, the consolation, the comfort, the maturation, the change that we need. Because see, so much of what we're talking about is that we need to change. What do we pray at the very beginning of every sermon here at Foothills? That we would be what? Stagnant? Is that what we pray? Or that we would go backwards? That we would be transformed. Brothers and sisters... You and I, we need to be transformed every day. When you die, okay, that, we can stop saying that. But until then, we need to be transformed. And what is that transformation? It's through the renewing of our mind. And what's the purpose transformed into what? The likeness of Jesus Christ, our Savior. And every time He does that in us, we have a story to tell. Every moment of repentance for our sin every grief we feel over the pain that we've caused others because of our sin, and every time we repent, every time we're forgiven, every time we're being transformed and changed, it's a story to tell of His faithfulness. We love to testify, don't we? We love to share the story of when you became a Christian, right? Well, how about the story of the last time you sinned against somebody, and you went and you confessed your sin, and they forgave you, and you were restored? Or the last time somebody sinned against you, and instead of getting bitter, you just tender-hearted towards them, And then they came and asked forgiveness and you forgave them and you moved ahead. Brothers and sisters, we must be like Barnabas and be sons and daughters of encouragement by looking to Christ. Christ, Christ, more of Christ, we pray. Okay, what is one of the descriptions of Jesus Christ? And it is so beautiful. We read it in Luke chapter 2 this morning. The consolation of Israel. Now, I don't know about you, but I think Israel suffered a lot. I think they suffered a lot. And we, as the true Israel of God, we also suffer a lot. Sometimes it's because of our own sin and our Father disciplines us like He did the nation of Israel. Sometimes it's because we're being persecuted. But either way, from whence comes our consolation? From Christ alone. 
He is our comfort. He is the only one who can console us, and he's got more than enough. More than enough. Every time, no matter what you're going through, he will never disappoint you. Brothers and sisters, our greatest problem is to look elsewhere than Christ. Next. I want to encourage you to look to Christ. I want to encourage you to to put your mind and your heart into Christ's mind and Christ's heart for you. Can Christ sympathize with you and your sufferings? Can he? Is he able? Is there some unique aspect to your sorrows and your sufferings that Christ did not personally experience? In fact, the scriptures tell us precisely that there's no suffering that anyone has ever been through that Christ did not go through while he was here. Save sin. There's a type of suffering that we go through that's tightly connected to our own sin that he knew only on the cross. But he's known it all. And he even knew that kind of sin suffering in a way that we'll never know. The full wrath of God poured out upon him. Are you wayward? Do you do things you know you shouldn't do? Are you, are you ignorant? Do you do wrong things that you don't even know about? Being wrong. Probably. Well, your Savior is able to sympathize. We're told from the Word of God. His heart is moved towards you. He is able to sympathize with both the wayward and the ignorant. And so, do you need consolation? Do you need encouragement? Do you need forgiveness? Do you need to be strengthened? Do you need to be uh, personally convicted and convinced that your sin is not greater than God's grace? That your struggles are not greater than God's grace. That whatever you feel stuck in is not greater than God's grace. Do you need that? I hope that the word coming today will encourage you. I want to warn you a little bit. This is another form of encouragement. What is the alternative to comfort, consolation, and encouragement from Christ? What is the alternative? Is there any other pure fountain? No. So... See, if our eternal souls are not being healed by Christ, soothed by Christ, comforted by Christ, then our pains and sorrows are really just being painted over. You ever, you ever heard about like there's mold in an apartment complex or maybe in a, in a house and the landlord give them the call and they say, oh, I'll be right over and they, they just paint over it. There we go, fixed up. It's not fixed up, right? There's probably some water problem. There's probably mold growing all the time. It's going to break through again, paint over it again, break through again. Paint. You, know, you don't want to do that. You've got to go find the water source and fix it. You see, oh, and that mold will get worse. It'll spread. Next thing you know, you just got to tear out walls. So it gets worse if we just paint over it, if we just gloss over it. To go to the core, and that's what Jesus and only Jesus can do. If we don't do that, if we've been harmed, if we've been disappointed, if we've been hurt in, in some way, this pain, this sorrow will lead to the following things instead. Instead of unity, there will be isolation. Instead of peace, there will be bitterness. Instead of tranquility, there will be anger. Instead of being consoled by Christ, we'll turn to self-gratifying efforts to find consolation, something that just takes the pain away for a moment. Whatever it might be, whether it's entertainment or whether it's drugs or alcohol or lust, whatever it is, anger, that's where you will go. 
And it's, look, you can paint over it all you want, but it's going to come back. So who wants real healing? That's what we need. We need the consolation of Israel to come to our souls and to heal us. We want to be kingdom people. We want to be like Barnabas and actually make a difference in the kingdom. We have to drink from the consolation of Israel deeply ourselves, or we're not going to be. Unfortunately, we'll just kind of long to be that kind of person. And the little white stone we'll get might be saved through fire. And we'll be rejoicing over that. Because there's so much that we can waste and miss out on while we're here, even as Christians. Don't waste your life. Great book by John Piper. So what happens to our ability to comfort others if we are not comforted by God? And it's not like we just become kind of a neutral thing to where we're not really... It's actually, we, we make things worse. We make things worse. Oh, may God grant to us this comfort. And I hope we'll see, and here's a question. Do you see the connection between these types of people? If Barnabas was the leader and they were all kind of becoming this kind of person, can you see the connection between unity and this being this kind of person? Corporate unity flowing from all of us being this kind of person who just looks to Christ and goes to Him over and over again for all of our pains, all of our suffering, all of our problems, all of our disappointments, all of our needs, everything, everything, we go to Christ. And we do that together over and over again every day, every breath, every sunrise, every sunset until we die. Let's pray. Almighty and gracious Heavenly Father, we are so grateful to You, Lord that you have sent Christ and that he has died for our sins and that you raised him up from the dead and he now lives forever, never to die again. And in his resurrection, we are brought certainty, assurance of total victory over our sin, over death, over hell. And yet, Lord, in this life, we know that we're so weak. Our faith is so small. We're so prone to the flesh to be selfish and to be prideful and to not receive from you, Lord Jesus Christ, the comforting, the healing, the consolation, the power of heaven in our souls that we need. Oh Lord God, we ask that even in this day, that even in this day you would mark our memories and that this, even this day would be a turning point for each and every one of us, Lord. That we would learn more deeply to drink from Christ this day. In whose name we pray. Amen.